This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Star Wars Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. So glad you've joined us once again here at the Star Wars Report we're here to talk all things galaxy far, far away. Now, not only that, we've got a pretty special guest uh, this week and a pretty special Star Wars project. I've hinted at it here on the show that actually just launched this week. It's, it's out on the internet. We haven't, I really haven't talked about it a whole lot on the show, but uh, that's due to my philosophy of don't announce you're going to do something. Just, just do the thing. And... Uh, the thing I did was help relaunch and, and do a brand new format for the incredible Star Wars podcast that I've been a longtime fan of, Beltway Banthas. And we have the host of Beltway Banthas joining us. It's Mr. Stephen Kent. How's it going, man? Hello. Hello. Nice to be back with you. And uh, I, for one, love announcements and teasing and teasing and teasing and then not delivering on the product. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. That makes you do. very popular. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I welcome to the to the program. It's it's been a while since we had you on. I just wanted to touch base and see um uh, uh how it's going in in your Star Wars world, how you've been and and maybe actually right here at the top of the show talk a little bit about the um the process for the re- relaunch, revamp that that we just did with uh, Beltway Banthas. Yeah, well, I've been quite well considering I have a a new producer in my life named Riley Blanton <laughs> of the Star Wars Report and Mouse and Castle who is executive producing the Beltway Banthas podcast now and really elevating this show that has been going on now for almost three years, um, uh, three years and running doing Star Wars and politics mashup analysis and discussion and re-envisioned this show for how it could be more newsy and more um, more monologue driven and, and really just packaged almost like you're listening to like the New York Times the Daily or something, mm. except you're getting a dose of Star Wars political analysis instead of just round table. Yeah. Well chatter I, like you might get in, in most podcasts and it's it's been quite a thrill to work on it with you. I was I I remember when this idea uh, popped into our brains um, and I was so excited because th- we've had a couple, I- I've always w- wanted to tackle a podcast project that was more, more refined, more heavily produced where, I, where there's actually effort in writing interviews, prep and narrative. Really? That's the key, key thing. Cause, because I've always loved that style of podcast and it just doesn't exist in the, in the star Wars world. Really? Uh, and so I, I've always kind of wondered of how to you know find an angle to do something like that. And when this opportunity came up, I was like, we got to do it. Um, yeah. And, and I love it. Like it's yeah. 
Mm-hmm. My my favorite Star Wars podcast for a long time, and, and no shade to towards yours intended, <laughs> but like my I have a very NPR personality. It's just kind of how I skew. And uh, lattes with Leia. Mm, um, yes, Amy Radcliffe and Andrea Letamendi has long been one of my favorite shows because there's like emotion on the table. Like today we're going to talk about Kylo Ren and hiding behind a mask and mm. then they just sort of sit there and sip on coffee or tea and just get into the weeds about the emotional drama of the subject matter and it's it just it it's free flowing but at the same time there is a narrative because there's like this central thing that they want you to understand and and I've, I love that and I'm inspired by that mm. and it's something that I've tried to put into this new version of the show where this week our, our relaunch episode was purely focused um, on the issue of democracies and how they die and if Star Wars actually teaches us the wrong thing that we need to know to save ourselves mm. in this crazy world we live in which yes. is something that I've never suggested on my show before which is that star wars might be missing something it was an interesting thesis and and, and you know an, an insert padme gif now um because it was it's always been that sort of it's a cliche in star wars fandom now so i i absolutely love how you explored it and then had some really special guests but you know, yeah. you know talking that, about that motion that you mentioned is you know liberty it dies and thunderous applause mm. and yep you know, that's, that is rooted in a great deal of wisdom that like you can't always trust mobs, you can't trust crowds, and you can't trust like people and sort of popular vote mentality necessarily with doing the right thing, you know, and it's kind of, you know, harkens back particularly to the post 9-11 era where we, you know, threw a lot of our liberties out the window very joyfully um, in the response to a, a feeling of uh, of being besieged by terror mm-hmm. and that wisdom holds true but i i've posited in this new episode that there are forms of democratic decline and losing your freedom um that is not as simple as majoritarian consensus and i i raise the flag about a couple of other alternatives that we need to be more aware of that might be more pertinent to the reality we live in today I couldn't have said it better myself. So uh, check it out. Beltway Banthas, it's back in the podcast feeds. If it's if it's not already part of your Star Wars podcast diet, uh, definitely go subscribe. I'm actually going to also tease, uh, you know, here, speaking of teasing, uh, I'm going to play a nice little excerpt at the end of the program this week. So you can check Show it out. Show us a little leg, Riley. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Uh, well, so I'm going to very quickly escape this segment, and we're going to get into the news. Something to report. Pleasure, I have good news. Data brought to us by the Botham spies. You can send a clear transmission. There it is. Listen, listen. Mm, yes, it is. It's been an interesting week of news. Actually, this story that I wanted to lead the show with was breaking right as we were recording last time, and I didn't really pay it any of mine. I didn't even put it in the notes last week. Um, but we got an email. Uh, we got an e- email from Willie, longtime friend of the show, and uh, he uh, he emailed said, "Hey Riley, what do you think of the rumors that there is or was a rift? Ah, drama, beautiful drama, a rift on the set of The Mandalorian because Pedro Pascal wanted to film scenes without the helmet on, but the creative team was having none of it. Um, that could explain why the trailer is kind of vanilla." But the trailer could also be vanilla because they want to save uh, the reveal for the show like they did with Baby Yoda. I hope the rumors are not true, but if they are, how big of a problem would this be for the show? Personally, 
I think the show could weather the storm if they had to recast Pascal. I like the guy, uh, and I get why he'd want to film more scenes without the helmet, but now that we've got that kind of rule out there, it would seem tough to do unless that focus is the focus of the scene. So it's this stems from, and actually I emailed Willie back too, this, this stems from this rumor that populated, well, there are really two things that, that came out. Uh, but there's a, um, a Twitter user uh, and, and leaker, Grace Randolph, I'm not too familiar with her, but she originally posted this rumor that halfway through the production of season two of The Mandalorian, Pascal was like, I'm out. You guys won't, um, you know, you won't support me. You can't show my face more. I don't want to ju- just be a figurehead. I want to be uh, more part of the show. She kind of characterized him as more or less a drama queen, which, by the way, doesn't really sync with anything I've seen uh, Pedro Pascal uh, in. So I don't know. that. That's my first hesitation. But I think what led fuel to the fire and what I wanted to ask you about, Stephen, was not but a few days later, John Favreau is in one of the trades. I think Hollywood Reporter um, gave an interview about season two and mentioned how about, and I quote, about halfway through the season, um, they had an opportunity to expand the story and bring more characters and storylines in, kind of like, wait for it, Game of Thrones. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I know. And <laughs> so that that kind of got a rise of some, uh, I, I saw a lot of negative reaction to the idea of, um, them having to copy Game of Thrones. They're like, no, season one worked. Why would you mess with something that was so successful? Which I pose that question to you, sir. I I, I, I know that, uh, and I'll talk a little bit maybe about why these may not yeah. be the best uh, best rumors. But let let's 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 talk about. It. We do know that John Favreau said that they're trying to expand the story, and he made that Game of Thrones comparison. Do you think that's the yeah, direction I, they should I, go? I think it's not worth getting too wrapped up in just sort of an off-the-cuff comparison about um, expanding the cast of the show and the amount of different stories that are interweaving. I, I don't think that that says anything in particular about how the product is going to go. And look, John Favreau, uh, when he gives, it is good. And I feel quite comfortable with whatever he has on his mind about how to expand the scope and the content of the story. But I, I think one one thing that I, I think when you sort of read back this rumor is, uh, are we really supposed to believe, or maybe this like says something about your, your predisposition towards famous people in the celebrity class. Do you really think it's impossible that a celebrity could be incredibly vain <laughs> and, and that it matters to them that their face yeah. is shown and that they are the face, the literal face of a show? I, I think that that is not outlandish at all. Mm. And any of the the face that Pedro Pascal puts forward in interviews and the behind-the-scenes content on Disney+, Plus, that is curated stuff for public relations purposes. And that's not necessarily the best way to assess, um, you know, what does Pedro really think about his role in the show? Because I don't, I don't know. If I were Pedro and I were vain and I were not a super nice and, and cuddly person, I might go, <laughs> you don't need me for this show. <laughs> you don't need me. I spend all my time behind this mask and I grunt and I say short, quippy lines and then I, I, I stomp off. <laughs> like that is I, – I, I don't want to underplay 
the value that he brings to the show. I really don't. But I don't want to pretend like it's impossible mm. that someone might not be who you think they are based off their interviews and public presentation. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, and you made me think about the situation maybe a little bit differently because my skepticism came from the source and, and like, okay, sure, so, so sure. a leaker on Twitter is talking about it. And, and, and the, the deal with this kind of thing is I think the, the, the safest assumption is the, is, is somewhere in the middle ground. Like there, there is a grain of truth to maybe a frustration or nega- negotiations on the part of the actor and his agents yeah, to be a, and I, I a have, bigger role. I have a middle ground theory for you. And, mm-hmm. and it, you just said the, 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 the word, which was mm-hmm. agents. Yes. And I, I work in public relations. That's my full-time day job. I, I work in publicity and I got to say, if there's some sort of like random leaker on Twitter and then there's sort of like a movement of whispering and discontent about Pedro Pascal's lack of FaceTime on the show as like a a poster boy for The Mandalorian and Star Wars, it could be coming from a whisper campaign by his publicity people. And they might disagree with Pedro. Pedro might be really happy to be on the show and love doing it, but his PR people or his agents, they want their guy like to literally be on posters so that mm. they can make more money as his publicity people. Um, that matters to them. And sometimes this does happen. Publicity people become at odds with their clients because they do at some points have diverging interests between business and art. Yeah. You know, that's a, that is a good characterization because there's a lot, there's a lot at play. This isn't just like, well, and, and here's the thing that I loved that kind of added some fuel to this fire. The, 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 the theory YouTuber, uh, <laughs> Dictor Von Doomcock. That's the thing. That's the thing I might censor out of the edited version of this podcast. <laughs> but I've seen this, his name keeps floating up, uh, up when rumors um, come out because he he literally he piles yeah. on and yeah. he was the one. He's like, yeah, Pascal definitely complained to George Lucas himself. And I'm like, all right, all right, people, this is this is this is where you're feeding a machine at this point. It, mm-hmm. It's all just trying to make a bigger deal than you need to. And and this piece in inverse that um. Uh, that we're that we've been referencing that does kind of a nice job of putting together the timeline of the events um, brings up the fact that Phil Shostak tweeted towards the end of the production of season two that he had visited the set and was hanging out with Pedro Pascal. So he it's not like he definitely didn't leave the set and stormed off and was never a part of it after halfway through the season. And therefore they, you know, quickly are like, all right, who from Star Wars Rebels or the Clone Wars can we get in here for the second half? I don't think that's how, how it happened. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really, it's really tough to say. And, you know, these, these kind of rumors, I, I think are vicious, counterproductive, and, and they don't like do much for anybody. But, you know, at the same time, I just, I just sort of look at it and I go like, you know, what kind of actor does want to, to hide completely behind a mask entirely. And we also know that there has been um, a great deal of discord on, on set possibly, um, with co-stars and and we won't we won't go too deep into that sure. but you know it's just possible that there is some trouble in paradise on the set of that production uh, but you know what the uh, the show's coming out it's been made and yep. they're going to keep making more seasons and i'm not really worried about any of it at all yeah no i think so and there might be four seasons because uh Giancarlo Esposito was just talking about how in a recent interview it's going to be four seasons long which by the way Esposito, probably one of the most uh, loose-lipped when it comes to actors in The Mandalorian. 
like he kind of not so shyly was hinting at like well maybe yeah. it's possible he's force sensitive i don't know and i'm like all right all right <laughs> yeah yeah it's not um, i don't know if he's completely loose-lipped or if he just like really gleefully likes to mess with reporters i, I really think it is yeah he was in an interview with people magazine he's like uh quote we're living in a universe that's so huge and there's so much more to explore um, so I think that the show is going to lay the groundwork for, uh, the depth and breadth that's going to come in season three and season four, uh, where you really going to start to get answers. We'll find out. Like, I get, what does he know? Like, I'm, I would be surprised, but I guess maybe he does, or maybe he's just, uh, wishing it into reality, you know, three or four seasons. That would be, that would be a good way to go. Um, but it's always yeah. possible. You wish these things into reality. Exactly. And then there's, um, it, there's actually official word on Mandalorian stuff instead of all these rumors and, and, and social media drama and all that exciting stuff. It, we, we have official word from the horse's mouth update. They're doing Mando Mondays, a bounty of new products and digital content content to celebrate the Mandalorian, um, after premiering last fall and quickly taking the world by storm, The Mandalorian, which took home seven awards last week. I don't know if you knew this. They won some Emmys. I did. I saw that. We were all very proud of our, Go. our people over at The Mandalorian. Good job, thank, everyone. Thank God. You know, this, the, this crisis of a year has been, has, has been abated now that the Emmys have aired <laughs> and the appropriate people have won awards. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, didn't Gina Carano present an award that night? I don't know. I didn't watch, I, which is shocking, I'm sure. But I always, <laughs> I always laugh a little bit. Not at the the awards are the same as they've always been. Self indulgent, right? That's why we all love Ricky Gervais hosting the Golden Globes because he he, he tears a new one into the world of 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 Hollywood privilege. But um, I I always laugh a little bit at just how excited people get when like their anointed franchise or show or actor won the award from the amongst the other shows and actors it's always yeah. a little it's a little odd to me uh, you know it's validation we all have these these intense obsessions and these deep deep fandoms and it feels nice to be seen and i i think honestly for star wars fans mm-hmm. star wars is not an award season property that's true and it's very important to remember that i think with star wars fans is we largely to get cut out of yeah. the oscars the academy awards or whatever um, you know, we get like a usually an, a, a special effects or a sound effects nomination and almost never win. I, I think I think there was maybe only one instance. Um, Star Wars is always skimped. So to actually have it included in the Emmy Award season, it's pretty exciting. And it, I think it makes people feel good about being Star Wars fans. Yeah. And it makes the people who made it, I guess, even more excited. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it is one of those things that it, it's outside of the norm and maybe that's why i'm sort of like we're the, we don't need their awards i'm like i'm like that kid i was like it's fine timmy got the prize i mean i need to play baseball any i don't know it's um you just like being an outsider i do maybe i do maybe that's my problem but anyway mando mondays it's a thing they actually have a website they made uh, lucasfilm set up mandomondays.com so each um after each episode airs uh on friday on disney plus you can head to mandomondays.com and you'll get to see new toys, collectibles, apparel, books, comics, digital content, and more. It'll run for nine weeks, culminating on December 21st. I hope whatever marketing specialist on their team came up with Mando Monday has got a raise. Mando, uh, listen, who would have thunk? 
Really clever. <laughs> Mandalorian, which day of the week? <laughs> so, uh, they actually, there's also some pre orders um, now on Shop Disney for some uh, sweet vintage style Mandalorian figures. I'm no, I'm no huge collector, but I actually like the, some of the artwork. Uh, we have a link to it in the show notes. Some of the artwork is pretty freaking cool. I'm not even going to lie. The Cara Dune uh, figure, it's pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Also, there's new Funko Pops. Um, also, more Baby Yoda merch. I've been seeing a lot of Baby Yoda merch out in the wild these days. Um, it was scarce to come by last year, but it, I think I think I the- got to I got to hug a baby Yoda yesterday. My daughter was playing with a neighborhood kid. What uh, out on the sidewalk, and then he came running out of his house with one of the plush baby Yoda like life life like looking things, and I was like, his mm. eyes are beautiful. <laughs> I could swim in them. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think I creeped him out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, all right. One last little uh, news story that I wanted to hit um, before we jump into some feedback from you guys. But uh, this is kind of a self-indulgent one, but I'm actually pretty excited. They're doing a full deluxe edition of the solo soundtrack. Better late than never. Never. John, Pyle, John Powell, who is the composer, of course, for Solo Star Wars Story, um, revealed the deluxe edition is happening via his Instagram um, solo Star Wars story coming in 2020. They don't give us a specific date, but it's to uh, digital exclusive streaming and digital purchase. It's over two hours of original unedited music from Solo, a Star Wars story. I'm gonna play a little video here. It works. question are you much of a film score guy steven i don't think i've ever talked to you about it i would i mean i would say that i am an average consumer of of film scores i i really love them they bring value and purpose and meaning to my life but you know i'm just looking right now at what this uh deluxe edition is going to include riley and it is going to include the major key version of the imperial march yes that that i think we had first heard it in Star Wars Rebels, yes, the yes. idea that if you live in the Empire, you hear the major, uh, you hear the Imperial March in the major key, making it sound inspirational and exciting and not dreaded. And the idea that we're going to actually get that, like streaming on Spotify, that's so cool, so I'm, cool. I'm hyped. Yeah, that was um, it wasn't Rebels, but I kind of liked the one in Solo, maybe even better. It was just so well done. Um, yeah. that, which and by the way, there's going to be a track called "Chicken in the Pot." <laughs> I'm now. I'm only thinking is there of some banjo. <laughs> uh, now I'm only thinking of WAP. Oh God! <laughs> <That> line <laughs> macaroni in a pot. Uh, except now we're going to get chicken in a pot oh, by Dryden Voss's barge <laughs> musicians. I don't. I don't think that's a thing that they're going to do. Question mark. <laughs> No, nope. it's a uh, chicken, chicken in the pot by Megan the Stallion. Mm, I listen. I'd buy the album. <laughs> I would buy it. Yeah, I would. You know what? <laughs> Maybe if they do, ever do a solo Disney Plus series, they can get uh, Megan and the Stallion, uh, like her own. Uh, I don't know, Max Rebo band kind of deal. 
Yeah. And That's... then Cardi B doing a remix of Duel of the Fates. Um, <laughs> which it does say there's going to be a Duel of the Fates adaptation included. What does that mean? An Wait, adaptation? What? What? Interesting. Yeah. He also confirmed that the Duel of the Fates adaptation will be included. And I'm sitting here wondering what the heck that means. I, you know... I am a huge soundtrack nerd, and even I was not tracking it. Maybe there's some cue where he referenced Duel of Fates. Probably, I'm guessing, in um, uh, the Darth Maul scene. I mean, just hazarding a guess. Um, Or or maybe he composed one for that sequence, but they didn't end up using it. I could see that. Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember the music that would appear when Maul was in the movie, but I would imagine that that's already in the soundtrack. Well, the in which case, in which case, I'm just wondering if it's like just a cover, like you know, like a composer covering a composer. That would be really cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. What the past, the legacy of Star Wars music that's not John Williams is really fascinating to me, especially the um, the LucasArts era. And the uh, like, mm. Mar- Mark Grisky's work on The Force Unleashed, and um, I, Sean. Will- I'm trying to remember some of the composers, but there, there's a series of like working composers LucasArts used for Knights of the Old Republic, and it was just some incredible score. Um, even the work Gordy Hobbs done for uh, Jedi Fallen Order and for um, yep, yep. Uh, Battlefront Two. It's really to me, since I'm such a, a music nerd, especially a Star Wars music nerd, it, it's honestly some of the best stuff out there. I would say right on par with any of these spinoff composers who are certainly more well-known and prolific in the, in the music industry, like John Powell's uh, uh, storied uh, legacy of, of film composing. And of course, Michael Giacchino for uh, Rogue One. Um, like I thought he was a, a perfect choice. Although let me ask you who this. Do you, who mm-hmm. do you, who score do you like more uh, Giacchino or Powell? You literally just beat me to it. <laughs> I was about to ask, you know, I think, um, that's actually tough. If you'd asked me right after Solo came out, I would have said in a heartbeat, uh, Rogue One and Giacchino. But even listening back to this, I, I don't think I've actually dug into the Solo score enough to give it a fair shake. I'm definitely going to get this extended edition because I do think the main theme, the Solo theme that was composed, uh, which, by the way, was composed or at least in part by John Williams. He actually did collaborate with john powell early on to kind of come up with that main theme um and then john powell kind of expanded upon it and and you hear it throughout the whole film the dum but it's uh, it's very uh old school action adventure indiana jones you know what i would like very much actually i don't know if i would like this (laughs) actually you can't do this but i'm gonna say it anyways (laughs) it would be really cool if when they do another recut and relaunch of the star wars trilogy in like 20 years and they update a bunch of special effects and change more things in the story and the narrative of the original (laughs) trilogy that in one scene in the uh original movie a new hope they cut in the han solo theme (laughs) in some way to actually give him a moment that ties it to the solo trilogy or the solo film yeah that i would be be about that well although it's interesting because and I really liked that he actually collaborated with Williams to to for that theme because it does have a classic John Williams sound, which only makes sense because they worked together to build the core of it. Um, because Williams never composed the theme for Han Solo throughout the original trilogy. He's the only major character, actually, that doesn't have mm-hmm. an original John Williams theme. And yep. I think it was it's almost it separates him out of the story and I think helps us connect with him 
emotionally as kind of one of us. That's how what makes Han Solo sort of one of that's us. That's a good. That's a good point. That's um, a good point. Uh, so, I, but I think, of course, now that we are long past that that history, it makes it a little bit easier to to approach. Um, I was I'm very tempted to. This is this is this is the problem, guys. I I have I knew I literally tossed this Stephen in the section of like we're gonna this is a cool thing's coming out. Check it out, guys. And then I get pulled pulled away, um, mostly exclusively because I want to fast forward through Solo on Disney Plus to actually play back the scene. All right, here we go uh, to see what the music is because I'm trying to remember. Let's take a listen. Oh yeah, there it is. A little bit. Let me rewind a little bit more. Yeah, it's this. I'm on my way. Kira, you and I will be working much more closely from now on. There it is. He had two two little motifs there. They had the little do 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 do, and they even had the bum 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 bum. You know my favorite version of the uh, Duel of Fates mm-hmm. theme. The Lego Star Wars one where it's Darth Maul. Um, oh, yeah? <laughs> Darth Maul mouthing, uh, mouthing and miming along with it. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that special. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really remarkable and cool to me how the, the, the Duel of the Fates has really, I think, stood apart as like one of the iconic songs in all of Star Wars because you always have to fight people about the Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace always seems to end up in key players like low on their rankings and low on their listings, but Duel of the Fates will always stand out as one of the top, most popular, cited, covered, and used songs in playlists for Star Wars. Mm. Uh, it's what makes The Phantom Menace so special. It, it really is. It really is. And I can't think of any better way of, of really uh, tying a bow on your sentiment than playing this little excerpt from Lego Star Wars. Awesome. So that's Darth Maul and like, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I just Love took it. away from your very poignant point. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, but all right. All right. Now, now let's, now let's get into it. Uh, ladies and gents, you know it, you love it. It is time for Boba's bounty. It's worth a lot to me. As you wish. It's every week we talk about something that we've watched, read, listened to, smelled, maybe, uh, in the world of Star Wars, collected. Uh, and Stephen, I'm going to let you uh, kick us off this week. What have you been up to in the world of Star Wars? Yeah, so just excited to say that my daughter has just completed Claudia Gray's Leia book. Oh. And she is now looking for another source of excitement and thrills in the Star Wars universe. And I recently found my entire collection of Jedi Apprentice young adult novels from uh, the 90s and early 2000s. This is the series of books, which are now squarely in the Legends category, um, that feature the uh, apprenticeship of Obi-Wan Kenobi under Qui-Gon Jinn. Mm -hmm. Very, very good books. They're very short. They're exciting. They're full of mystery and intrigue. And if there's two main things I would like to just point out about what I love about those books, and I'm just so thrilled when my daughter 
um, came in just yesterday saying that she was going to start reading the first book is, you know, Qui-Gon doesn't want to like Obi-Wan. He really keeps at him at mm. an emotional arm's length. Um, he is recovering from the loss of a different apprentice. He actually lost an apprentice to the dark side. Um, before Obi-Wan named Xanatos with, with an X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His name starts with an X, but it's you know, basically it's like Xanatos is his name. And he didn't necessarily go to the dark side so much as he he left the Jedi Order to go work in the private sector and go back to his family's um, mining business. And he hates Qui-Gon. And in the Jedi Apprentice novel, Xanatos comes back um, to try and kill Qui-Gon and, and exact some sort of revenge on him for the emotional damage that Qui-Gon incurred mm-hmm. on him. And it's a, it's a great series of books. And Xanatos is the recurring villain throughout mm-hmm. the entire series. Um, and it's it's definitely worth picking up, or at least it's just sharing with your children. Because um, it's really good for kids age like uh, maybe like 8 to 12. Mm, yes. Or like 14, which is how old I was when I read them all. Uh, yeah, I was probably 15. <laughs> I, I read, but I'm not going to lie, I read every single one of them. Xanatos is the Final Fantasy emo character of Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah, totally. He looks like one too, and he's got this ring-shaped scar on his cheek. Mm. And I, I mean, I feel like I could like give spoilers because, like, how on earth can you spoil books that are this old? But you know, just he basically just spends like three books getting under Qui-Gon's skin and trying to torture him emotionally over what Qui-Gon feels was his first failed apprentice, and then you get to the Phantom Menace. And you kind of understand a little bit more about Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's restrained relationship. Mm. They are close, but they're not too close. And there's a reason for that. And Qui-Gon has tried not to baby and get too attached to Obi-Wan. And then it almost like makes you understand why Qui-Gon like throws him, not under the bus, but like Mm. is pretty quick to be like, you know what, you're ready, go on, do the trials, you're a Jedi Knight, I'm taking on a new apprentice and moving on to the next thing. Um, It's it's funny. It's a great great collection of books that I've been thinking about again. It's fantastic. And you actually, it's funny you bring up Claudia Gray at the beginning of the segment, but she actually explores a similar dynamic in Master and Apprentice which I, I just finished a couple mm. weeks ago. It's yeah. a little summer read of mine. But she trying to kind of explains a little bit of that restrained relationship, more from the perspective of, of Qui-Gon's apprenticeship to Count Dooku, but is similar similar dynamic explored there. I thought, And I think it's fascinating. I'm glad that Qui-Gon, thanks to Claudia Gray, is, is getting his own his due in, yes. the, in the new canon, even yep. though there's some amazing stuff in the, in the old canon. Yeah, Qui-Gon, uh-huh. Qui-Gon remains my favorite Jedi, and I just have to chew on one single movie and my imagination of the rest of his entire life. So give me yeah. more, please. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, uh, for me, uh, my Boba's Bounty this week is validation. That's what it is. You hear that sound, ladies and gentlemen? This is the sound of me feeling validated. <laughs> and that's by all of you guys who reached out on, on Twitter. I actually got a couple of emails. The best highlighted from Ryan. <clears throat> Ryan says, Riley, I think I know what's up with the walking back issues in Fallen Order. Steven, this is going back to last week's Boba's Bounty. Uh, last week was the first time I've ever done Boba's Bounty that was purely negative. <laughs> and me just ranting. Um, 
Uh, he says, I, uh, the walking back issues with Fallen Order. For the record, I agree with you on the criticism. I think the issue is there's so many findables and collectibles the game makers are assuming you'll want to use the new abilities you've just acquired to find those collectibles on your way back to the ship. If you're not a completionist, it can be very frustrating and a waste of time. It's almost like they're trying to make it feel like an open world game when really it's a linear action game, game just with multiple paths that actually are just variations on a straight line. Just my thoughts on it. So, yes, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it because it's it's true. Reporting back, I have not... I have, I've stayed emotionally strong post-breakup. I've not gone back to Jedi Fallen Order <laughs> um, because... Steven, as I described last week, it was just unfortunate to me the way the the gameplay is designed, both with the puzzles and then primarily with at the end of every level and quest, you have to make your way through the entire map. Find your way because they're not easy to read maps unless, you know, I'm a I'm a gamer dummy. That's true. Yeah, How, yeah. But as an I, average gamer, fallen, it's just impossible. Fallen Order reminds me of like you're, you're trying to do like Ocarina of Time Zelda, yes. but without but without the fun of getting lost in the world a little bit. Yes, uh, thank you. They they try to make you feel like you're set free and doing all of these kind of puzzles and and great like map builds and then quests. But then you can't like go spend time on a farm like you might in Ocarina of Time doing some really goofy side quest uh, and you know just like trying mm-hmm. to like earn new skills. I, I find that that Fallen Order does not deliver that. It is linear with side paths, um, yeah. and that that is not the same thing as open world. And that was my big criticism because I it's linear, and as a casual gamer, I just wanted to play the story, blow up some stormtroopers, kill some bad guys, fight against the Night Sisters, and go th- my way through. And at the end of each level, I'll, I'll repeat the analogy here, just because it's my favorite video game analogy ever, I think. Um, yes, it's one I came up with, but still. It's like playing Super Mario Brothers, getting to the end, running the f- up the flagpole, and then having to walk all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, well put. Um, so, so that's, uh, I, 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 you know, honestly, this, this, this has been a, a pretty hectic week, so I haven't had a lot of uh, Star Wars uh, dedicated time. Um, I was trying to think if there's anything particular that, that's jumped out to me, but I, I will say this: I've been, I, I've, as, as always, I'm going to throw a shout out as well. So it's not just another purely <laughs> negative Boba's bounty. Uh, the Star Wars Explained channel, Alex has been doing some great content, especially uh, with the recent season two of the Mandalorian uh, trailer. He has great breakdown and some recent videos of the last week. So definitely check that out. Star Wars Explained uh, as a as a good shout out here for Boba's bounty, which takes us into. Uh, some feedback. We've gotten a lot of emails from you guys recently, so I appreciate it. Report at gmail.com. Here's one from Gordon. He says, uh, Bright Suns, etc. I just finished uh, listening to the podcast uh, with the author of Secret uh, History of Star Wars. Yeah, Michael Kaminsky. I uh, found it very interesting. Uh, I've long held many opinions on how things went down, quote unquote, in the history of Star Wars. Many of my thoughts are born from reading voraciously every article and watching every interview, studying every piece of rare beh- behind the scenes footage. Uh, and I'm greatly chuffed that someone else completely independently came to many of the same conclusions as I. Um, having not uh, read or heard of the work, I'm still wondering about one particular behind-the-scenes piece that I saw in the production of Phantom Menace. In it, George, uh, George was hosting a visit by Steven Spielberg. I remember this. And George presented a life-size mock-up of a standard battle droid, uh, the Roger Roger editions. And Steven seemed strangely, strangely nonplussed. And then George said, 
there's more than one way to kill these things. Um, but I felt within the context of what I was viewing, he was not talking about the droid. I honestly felt like he was referring to Star Wars itself, or perhaps more specifically, the immense popularity and the overwhelming dedication of its fans. And so he was perf- purposely attempting to destroy the franchise by creating such a goofy product that he could just be like, well, I tried. <laughs> so mm. I've only seen the clip twice, but I, and I haven't been able to find it again. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. I, 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 I read that completely differently. And then George said, there's more than one way to kill these things. Mm. I think he was winking to a fellow uh, director and producer and saying, Yes, there's one more than one way to kill these things. You know, one might be with a laser blast by another character. Another, another might be my fellow creatives who don't like this, and then we kill it in production. <laughs> um, and, and I, I don't know. Like I, I've never heard this story, but I'm reading mm. uh, his email, and I'm seeing that as him winking to a fellow director and going like, yeah, you know, we could it could always get killed in the creative process. <laughs> that's uh, true. Meaning it might not ever make it onto screen. I don't know. I that's that's kind of how I read that. Yeah, the clip is from the original hour long making of documentary. Actually, I think it's more. It's it's a super long form documentary on the making of the Phantom Menace that came out with the, um, I think VHS and DVD release. It's it's on the YouTube. It's on YouTube now, but. It's it's a great piece of work, and and I really wish we had that kind of behind the scenes access to the other prequel films. Um, but it's an amazing documentary, and I do remember that scene where Spielberg uh, was visiting, and you kind of see George just kind of staring at it awkwardly, You're like ah. So this, just cut them through them like butter. Yes, these are my these are my battle droids. Battle droids. This is uh, this is a plasma shield, and it, they can walk they can walk through them. It know? looked like two guys. That, you know, 50, uh, 40 years, 50 years prior would have been playing in their backyards with action figures doing the exact same thing. Star, these are the battle droids. This is, you know. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think it is not as like kill these things, the franchise. I think he is talking about the unpopular designs because I bet you anything that's at the end of a long day of touring visual design that is completely different from everything in the original trilogy and everything that made the original trilogy special the the used world look and i could see that you know putting that context on it that's probably what he's reacting to is more the design um of the battle droids ranger ranger um but yeah thanks for the email gordon and then finally we have uh close out the show an email from uh from willie uh, actually from earlier in the show i've been saving this for a few weeks it's been on the back burner but uh, i wanted to ask you about it Stephen, because we are now post sequel trilogy and we're not only post sequel trilogy but we're also sort of post all of the other autopsies <laughs> so now i'm feeling a little more comfortable bringing uh bringing this uh bringing this up towards the end of the show um i wanted to see what you thought he 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 gone back and forth and we emailed a little bit about the sequel trilogy and some of its limitations and successes that we've talked about ad nauseum on the show but i kind of liked what he proposed or thought of as an alternative and what may have filled some of the gaps that that were created by the weight of expectations with the original characters that was kind of the context of our email conversation he says Mm -hmm. um the sequel trilogy should have taken place a thousand or maybe even several hundred years after the events of return of the jedi in that time, uh, the rebellion grew and flourished, but then fell uh, to the rising dark side undertow, which then ushered in a new Sith era, only to be shattered by a resurgence of the new Jedi-like movement. 
only to fall to the hubris and decay much like the old republic. And the cycle continued on, the light rising, the dark side to meet it, and vice versa. And that's what the opening crawl would explain, that the universe had been caught in this uh, <clears throat> sinusoidal, I, I hope I... Uh, I'm going to have to Google the word. Let me pull my, push my glasses up here. That's that's from Willie in the email, not me. Um, a wave of light and dark. I'm going to say cyclical. Stop using such big words, Willie. <laughs> cyclical uh, wave of light and dark. And that's where our movie opens. A young hu- humanoid kid, since Star Wars is for kids, but not as young as Jake Lloyd. Let's not mess that up. More like 14 to 16, coming of age, somehow finds C-3PO, who's been long forgotten perhaps like some kind of young Indiana Jones type of opening scene, but you have to make it epic to grab people's attention, but not to something that they've seen before. So it's not too derivative. Uh, I know I'm asking a lot. (laughs) Um, Perhaps this kid is force sensitive, but doesn't know what that means. Uh, But he finds C-3PO and activates him. And since the galaxy has been in a constant state of war, this thousand years technology hasn't changed that much. But uh, this new clearly activated uh, or this newly activated 3PO doesn't have all of his memories, only that he has to find R2-D2 or perhaps something that is a clue towards R2-D2. But the MacGuffin Mm -hmm. of this film and that would drive the film (laughs) is is finding R2-D2. So he's he's preserving Abram's, you know, favorite, you know, box, what's in the box. Which where he made that R two D two in the Force Awakens, but kind of yep. he removes the he he removes the weight of all of the expectations, the blankets of the original trilogy characters. Do you think that that would have been more successful, or maybe this would be a successful way forward? Yeah, so I I actually have been thinking about this for several years now, the expectations game, and what really undermined the sequel trilogy and its ability to succeed. I will answer that question by first saying that I am now in the midst of watching the sequel to the Avatar Last Airbender animated series. This uh, was a um, Nickelodeon series um, cartoon. Um, It helped give uh, which Star Wars writer did it help give a career to Dave Filoni. And the sequel series takes place um, a good century after the previous. And all of the former characters of that series are dead. And I had no idea when I started this sequel series that all of the characters that I bonded to for three seasons were going to be gone. I thought that this was going to be a direct sequel. Hmm. And I was stunned in the first couple of episodes when I realized that the lead characters were enshrined in statues in the memories of our new characters. And we were dealing with not the children, but the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the original characters. And it had forced me to reevaluate my entire expectations and take the series for what it was because they couldn't they couldn't tarnish the memories of of the original characters in that way um so i want to i want to answer and then by by going back to the original question i i do think that it actually was a bigger weight than i took it to be when these series when the series first came out Hmm. i i don't think that the hand-wringing about the force awakens and the last jedi was about anything more 
really, and I, I do mean this, it, it's going to sound extreme, but I really don't think it was about anything more than people not being able to recapture their childhoods. And part of the reason is because you had Luke Skywalker walk into that cockpit, um, mm. you know, look at Han's dice and feel like a broken man. And nobody wanted to see that in, in The Last Jedi. That made them sad. And they wanted to feel happy. And having Han, Leia, and Luke and those two droids in the Millennium Falcon makes them happy. And I, I just think that there was a miscalculation here with with Han Solo dying in the first one, uh, Leia and him being divorced, um, you know, and then Luke never crossing paths with any of them except for a spiritual connection with Leia towards the end. Um, it just it, it was not able to fill a void that is in people's hearts. Um, and that is not to say the movies are bad. I, I enjoyed the movies. Um, yeah, but it, it's something that I think is really, really hard for people to get over when they, they want that void filled. Yeah, Willie talks about it. Like, I, I think it's interesting what you bring up about the 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 weight of expectations, and it's kind of good to get that perspective comparing to another franchise that you love because it really points out like if you went this route, you have the touchstone of three PO and R two, you know, and the story is always kind of through their eyes, uh, but you wouldn't have to work in Han, Luke, and Leia, and and the the big three, and along the way you could kind of find out that Luke did restart the order. And that Leia did lead the rebellion to the New Republic to peace and prosperity for decades, and yes. that she and Han had kids, and they all lived happily ever after. Like you, you sort of you preserve that fairy tale, um, but then you can kind of still bring this the 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 rising yeah. and falling of the dark side and light S- side. Something I talk about a lot on Beltway Banff is is that I think that there is real world value in Star Wars shattering our expectations of happy endings and very clear resolutions to conflict. When I approach the sequel trilogy as a realist and as someone who's very interested in political science and and world history, I think it's valuable to see The Return of the Jedi not as a happy ending and the closing of a book, but just simply as a moment that was happy before more things went wrong again. I do think that there's value in that, in storytelling and in learning but there, there's something that you have to just r- grapple with, which is that Star Wars is is something more to people. Yeah, and and that there was something in that promise that was not fulfilled um, mm. with our characters not getting more time together, and uh, it might have been best for them just to run far away from it. And, and I actually think Willie's idea when I read it the first time, I, I will say I thought I was like, oh, this is kind of silly. And then I read it the second time, and I was like, you know what? There's there's something to this, actually. I, and it's it's a blank slate for a new adventure to be born, just simply starting with like a MacGuffin kind of thing with the mm. droids. And then it could eventually be, you know, in the course of three movies, blossom into something completely independent of that initial MacGuffin um, plot to start things up. And I think if there's one guy who can do that really well, it's J.J. Abrams. Like... I think absolutely he would have been a great choice. It's funny, Stephen, because I usually find myself in in the opposite seat uh, or opposite side of the table on these arguments. And it is, I'm usually a pretty strong defender of um, really the entire sequel trilogy. I have my frustrations with the lack of planning, and I, I think I've discussed that enough on the show. But I think maybe what might be some added dimension here, really, that you made me think of is... as I sort of look back to my childhood and the stories that inspired me most and kind of influenced who I am today, um, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Star Wars, 
um, I, I, these series, and Lucas himself, particularly with the original trilogy, leaned very heavily into this can be an ultimate happy ending. Uh, I remember like with pressure for like Lando to, to die in return of the Jedi, right. Or Han Solo to sacrifice himself. And, and George was like, no, I, I want this to be a fairy tale ending. And it, I, that's a George Lucas from the, from the seventies and eighties that was no longer the case when he approached the prequel trilogy. But I think there is real value in Star Wars, um, particularly the original trilogy, um, preserving a a simpler view of the world, a a simpler view of morality. I I don't I think sometimes it's too easy these days to dismiss the value of that. Um, but I think just as we grow and become adults, and as Star Wars fans, as kids, you know, as we grow and and see the these stories through different lenses and realize how complex the world is and how gray some things are and how sometimes it, every choice isn't black and white and isn't easily made. You do, you need to know at least what is right and what is right and wrong in, to some degree. Like the idea of Star Wars introducing morality in a simplistic way, I think has value. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's sort of in the, in the fantasy world, it's sort of com- comparing the modern trend of dark, realistic, uh, complex fantasy like uh, George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones. I know we we're kind of laughing about the series itself, but just like that incredible world and story and characters that absolutely like was transformative for me as I experienced the series. It just it blew my mind how you be you came to believe in and be betrayed by and 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 the the emotions that you go through with each of these fictional characters. Um, it had an incredible impact on my life, but that, that's different and, and it in, impacted me and came at, in a different stage of life for me than when I read Lord of the Rings as a 12 and 13 year old. Um, and, yeah. I, and I think there's value in both of those. And so I, I see the value in the way the sequel trilogy approached Star Wars through a more complex moral lens. But I also see the tragedy there because it did it with the characters that are so beloved. Uh, and maybe it would, I, I kind of see a universe of, you know, you can... You can't change the past, but looking to the future, I could see a a good opportunity to um, reset. Yeah, I I couldn't have put it any better. Nicely said. Yeah. Well, I you know what, Willie, I knew this would be a good conversation. I've been I've been uh, postponing it for for a couple of weeks here, but that is going to put the wraps on this episode of the Star Wars Report. And here's the deal, guys. Uh, I want to hear what you think. Uh, particularly when we're talking about moral complexity in Star Wars, but especially we've had it before, but not really in 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 the feature films until the sequel trilogy. So, um, and to a lesser degree, the the prequels they they they, they introduce a little bit more complexity. But um, I'm I'm curious what you guys think. Star Wars Report at Gmail You can send us an email and and jump in on this discussion. I have a feeling this will be uh, one that circles back over the next few weeks sometimes these these kinds of conversations come up on the show so i'm anxious to get y'all's feedback and we'll uh, i'm sure we'll revisit uh the idea of how to approach the future of star wars now during this beautiful time this incredible time where we don't know where we can just sit here as star wars fans speculate about the future and appreciate the past that's that's what we can do right here uh, at the Star Wars Report podcast. Mr. Stephen Kent, tell the people 
where uh, they can find you online. And especially, uh, let's give Beltway Banthas a plug. How can we uh, subscribe and catch the, the new show? Well, you can subscribe to Beltway Banthas by subscribing to Beltway Banthas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Um, look, Riley's done a great job with the relaunch and reimagining of what this show sounds like. If you've never given Beltway Banthas a shake, now is the time to do it. It really, 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 really is. So check out the show. You can find us on Twitter. You know, it's at Beltway Banthas. And you can find me on Twitter at Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen underscore Kent 89 on Twitter. And I would love to talk to you about anything. But, you know, the politics of Star Wars, philosophy and Star Wars is my thing. I'm working on a book right now on the very same subject matter. Mm. And hopefully I'll be back on soon to talk more about that. Absolutely, absolutely. And stick around after the show. We'll have a a nice little exclusive clip uh, to give you a taste of it as well. So uh, stick around after the credits. Also, you can uh, find us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Star Wars Report. Twitter, twitter.com slash Star Wars Report. Also, you can find me at the Riley Guy, R-I-L-E-Y, on Instagram, Twitter. Those are the places I'm typically hanging out. And uh, you can leave this show a review uh, on iTunes. Particularly, if you you use the Apple Podcasts app, um, uh, leave us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word about the show and uh and share with a friend if you have a star wars fan in your life that uh hasn't discovered the world of podcasting or hasn't heard about the star wars report share it let them know about the star wars report podcast until next time may the force be with you and remember many bothans died to bring you this podcast Many Bothans died to bring you this podcast. Uh-huh. That's funny. That's yep, funny. That's been the tag of the show ever since. Uh, <laughs> well, ever since <laughs> Carolyn Blakiston gave us a drop of it. Um, hang on. Let me see. This is recorded for the show, but when it had a, a previous name in 2010. Many Bothans died to bring you this podcast. That's Mon Mothma. She said it. She said the thing. It was on July 30th, 2020, that a sitting U.S. president, for the first time ever, suggested publicly that an upcoming federal election be delayed. Taking to Twitter as he often does for ill-advised ideas, President Trump tweeted, with universal, universal mail-in voting, voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be, will be the, the most, most inaccurate. inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote, he asks. There's a first time for everything, and for Trump's most committed critics, this kind of anti-democratic expression doesn't really come as a surprise. But if there's one thing that Americans on the left and right are pretty well attuned to, I think, it's perhaps even to a fault. It's the specter of dictatorship handed down to us in standard U.S. history classes all the way from our founding. Of course, if you're anything like me, your real schooling in the demise of democracy came from the Star Wars prequel trilogy. 
it's how it really became real. You know, the entire idea that the founding fathers all got together and they never wanted to have another King George. It does honestly feel abstract. Palpatine felt real. The first time I ever considered the idea that American democracy could be temporary was in 2005. It was Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. It had just hit theaters, and the discussion at my school of how Chancellor Palpatine had transformed the Republic into an empire was everywhere on the schoolyard the next day. All my friends were talking about it at lunch for at least the next couple of weeks, and I vividly remember a friend asking during our lunchtime banter about Episode 3, he said, do you think Bush will ever try to stay in office? I was a pretty conservative teenager at the time, but even then, I, I... I did wonder. I mean, with the controversial Iraq war nearly two years in and George W. Bush having just been reelected on a platform of fighting terror at home and abroad, my imagination really was for the first time running wild with how America could go the way of the Republic. You kind of have to be blind to have not seen the Star Wars trilogy uh, at that time and at least ask that question. Looking back on that time, it does feel kind of silly in comparison to where things stand today. But the lesson of George Lucas's prequels were to be vigilant, even of a mild-mannered, buttoned-up politician like Sheev Palpatine. For a whole generation of fans, if you were unaware of how Julius Caesar transformed the Roman Republic into a Roman Empire, or that Adolf Hitler was a democratically elected chancellor just one year before becoming the Fuhrer of Germany, Star Wars was your lesson on the popularly understood way in which democracies do steadily decline and can eventually become marred and dictatorship. The Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society.